Hi, I'm James Rodier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences. We're on the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And if you have a chance, please rate us on iTunes, and always feel free to leave us a comment or drop us a line on Twitter, at BioscienceAIBS. And for our fourth episode, I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Veldman of Iowa State University. His work is on the threat of forestation in areas that have traditionally been grasslands. And we also get into some of the ways that mapping and policy can threaten ancient landscapes. Now, I know at first blush, that might sound like a reversal of what we discussed last month, which was grassland incursion into Amazonian forest. Um, but we cover it in the interview, and it's actually an interesting distinction. So let's get straight to it. Dr. Veldman, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Very nice to be here. And just to get us started, you know, I think we're all very accustomed to hearing about the importance of forest restoration and forest preservation, but you're talking here about a situation in which we have too many trees and too much tree planting. And it seems as though you're describing a situation in which our conservation priorities are out of order, and I'm just sort of wondering what's going on. Well, I think that's the current state of, of environmental policy, um, and, um, and especially in the age of climate change and, and concerns over atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, planting trees would appear to be a really clear uh, approach to sequestering carbon, um, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And, um, you know, some of our concerns, um, uh, you know, we address both um, the biodiversity consequences of too many trees. So, and too many trees can um, be caused by intentional tree planting uh, in grasslands. So, that's afforestation, or it can happen more subtly um, through. Uh, fire exclusion, fire suppression policies, and other um, land use decisions that um, promote trees at the expense of, of grasslands. And what in particular do we lose when we do that in terms of ecosystem services? What's, what are the big ones? So preceding our paper, going back um, about 10 years ago, uh, Robert Jackson at Duke, now at Stanford, uh, published a, uh, a paper uh, detailing the consequences for groundwater and uh, stream water of afforestation. Um, and that's one of the one of the sort of ecosystem services I think we really forget about is that you you can't eat carbon sequestered in trees. Um, and there's a lot of other things that ecosystems do, services that they provide. Um, one, the provisioning of water that's extremely critical uh, to people who live in, uh, in grassy biomes. And this is of particular concern in regions that are seasonally dry or where annual precipitation is not particularly high. Um, and then also these, um, the biodiversity that is also a motivating factor for many conservation initiatives. You know, uh, speaking of the biodiversity, are we seeing a sort of a greater amount of biodiversity in the grassy biomes, or is it more of a situation where it's just a different landscape type, and if we, you know, um, promote afforestation throughout entire regions, we're going to lose this, this other type? Well, so imagine in grassy biomes that, um, that the majority of plant diversity is concentrated in the herbaceous plant community. So these are grasses and forbs and uh, shrubs that, um, you know, may only reach knee height. Um, and they focus a lot of their um, 
investment below ground because over millions of years, they've had to deal with repeated fires, uh, herbivores that are munching them back to the ground. And so over really long periods of times, uh, the species that live in grassy biomes have developed very different strategies than plants that live in forests. And along with that, you have many um, uh, animal species as well that, that depend upon these open ecosystems. When I say open, I mean open tree canopy ecosystems, um, and they don't do well in forests. I mean, we could, I mean, a, a prime example would be uh, the mega herbivores of Africa. I mean, these are not, uh, you don't, wildebeest herds don't occur in forests. I mean, these are, these are savanna species, grassy biome species. Um, and so if we, if we think about grassy biomes as, as ancient uh, and the species that occur there being dependent upon these uh, frequent uh, sort of forces that reduce above ground biomass, but concentrate it below ground, we realize that we're dealing with uh, a biome or that is very different than a forest and needs to be managed in a different manner. And in terms of appreciating its biodiversity values, we need to think about them we need to be thinking about what's going on in this herbaceous plant community and not simply think about how dense is the tree cover. You know, and in addition to that, one thing I took away from your article, though, is that we're not just talking about any grassland, though. We're talking about specifically the ancient grassy biomes, right? Right. And I think that this has been actually a real big part of the uh, image problem for savannas and grasslands is that they've largely been misinterpreted as degraded forests. And and some of this confusion comes from the fact that if you take, for example, a, a tropical forest and you burn it, you cut trees, you introduce cattle, uh, you sow exotic forage grasses, uh, over not very long periods of time, you can get a uh, vegetation that looks very much like a grassland. I mean, it's got grasses. It may have scattered few to uh, scattered trees. Fires may be frequent, um, but these are ecologically very, very, very different from uh, uh, old growth savannas and grasslands uh, that are part of uh, sort of the grassy biomes that evolved over millions of years and have often persisted in the same places for millions of years. That, that's fascinating because, you know, just last month we were talking about, um, you know, grassland incursion in the Brazilian rainforest. And it sounds like the, the biomes, you know, the ancient grassy biomes get a bad rap by comparison um, to those newer grasslands. They're not the same thing. Right. So, um, yeah, and, and the work by uh, Jennifer Balch and uh, Dan Nebstead, Paulo Brando that, um, that you're referencing um, is a really nice experiment to try to understand how uh, fires degrade forests and what are those sort of vegetation fire feedbacks and what does that mean for tropical forests. We're really concerned about the opposite dynamic where instead of fires moving into ecosystems that did not historically burn, we're actually removing fire from ecosystems that did historically burn. Um, Brazil in particular, where that experiment you referenced um, uh, is being carried out, 
um, is a prime example of this. Uh, it shouldn't be a conflict, but we'll say a conflict in sort of or a challenge to environmental policy, because in Brazil, out of a uh, out of concern over Amazonian deforestation and forest degradation due to fire, uh, they've had policies that made fire illegal even in the Sahado biome, their enormous uh, savanna biome in in uh, in Brazil, and so vast areas of the Sahado have been lost to forest encroachment. Um, not to mention. Uh, enormous rates of, of agricultural uh, conversion. That's interesting. And it raises something that, you know, I think we've talked around a fair amount, but we haven't necessarily drilled down on directly. And, you know, that's sort of the policy element of all of this. You mentioned in your article the Atlas of Forest Landscape Restoration Opportunities and, you know, how it had some problematic ideas. And I'm just sort of wondering, where are policymakers getting the wrong ideas, if they are? I think there's a, a, a few... A few things that factor into this. Um, one uh, certainly is perhaps a historic preference for forests in conservation, uh, which is in, in part somewhat odd in, in that we think of, you know, for example, influential work by Aldo Leopold that really was influenced by uh, the prairies of the Midwestern United States and their conversion to agriculture. And so even within um, the field of uh, ecological restoration, uh, restoration has its roots in uh, grassland conservation and, and trying to get back what was, what was lost due to agriculture. Uh, in terms of the sort of carbon policies, I mean, we've, we, we, there are many, many um, people who are sort of warning about the uh, pitfalls and risks associated with a sole focus on carbon in conservation. Um, and I think that right now, when we look at uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, and the, the clean development mechanism that's, uh, that's included, that offers, uh, essentially would offer money for uh, conversion of, of old growth grasslands for uh, tree plantations. Uh, there's no, nothing preventing uh, that sort of, of uh, payment to happen and that kind of, of uh, ecosystem loss to occur. Back to your question about um, the Atlas of Forest uh, Landscape Restoration Opportunities published by the World Resources Institute. Uh, that map was originally an analysis um, uh, in 2011 that was intended to determine the global potential for forest restoration. Uh, this came out of a concern of mostly tropical forest uh, degradation and deforestation and trying to sort of figure out where in the world and to what extent would it be possible to um, promote restoration, mainly through reforestation, um, and by demonstrating that there was this huge area, it looked really impressive for policymakers in you know at the uh, 
in Europe and North America to say, hey, we can get on board. There's a lot that we could do. There's a lot that we could invest in. Uh, that that map moved from being just sort of a, a page on a pamphlet to sort of promote uh, commitments to reforestation uh, to being this online atlas where users could sort of zoom in on different parts of the world and see where these opportunity opportunities for reforestation exist. That's where things fell short. Right. And I, I hope you'll indulge me for a moment. You know, I want to make sure that our listeners understand the scope of the problem that you're describing. Um, so I'd refer everybody to figure two uh, of your article, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, but it seems here that you're describing 9 million square kilometers of grassy biomes that are potentially at stake um, or at risk from being misclassified. Uh, am I reading that right? Is it is the problem really that big? Right. So there's, there's, um, that is, that's perhaps the, 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 the scale of the problem with their analysis. Um, we do mention a number of caveats, even in our own analysis. I mean, for example, um, we do not have a good global map of grassy biomes. So if, if uh, for those that are looking at figure two, we know that there are um, extensive ancient grassy biomes in Madagascar, in India, Southeast Asia, the Southeastern United States, uh, Northwestern North America, portions of uh, Mexico and Central America, um, uh, even areas of Europe that are not mapped um, on this map. Uh, which uh, so in uh, purple shows up the uh, the grassy biomes, but that was based on a widely used but unfortunately not very inclusive um, map produced by Olson and colleagues in in two thousand and one. So I'll just say that on the one hand we have real underrepresentation of the grassy biomes globally in this map. The other issue is that there may very well be some deforestation within those areas mapped as grassy biomes. So grasslands and forests often form sort of complex landscape uh, scale vegetation mosaics. Um, and, and there are certainly some forests that, that occur in these areas of, uh, that are mapped as grassy biomes. So we have a mapping problem. You know, and speaking of that mapping problem you brought up, what are some of the, you know, kind of practical mapping or conservation decisions that we're seeing um, that may not be the right ones, you know, say with regard to fire or something else? Yeah, well, so, and, and that's actually, you know, the, the question of fire, I think, is a really big one, because one of the key things that could be avoided, even if we don't have good maps, is to revise how a lot of countries are thinking about fire. I mean, for example, in Brazil, um, now in Bolivia, where, where I work, um, again, these policies intended to protect forests from fires are really having devastating consequences for the ecosystems that evolved with fire. Um, and in many cases, um, people doing sort of their traditional land management um, are actually quite good at maintaining grassy biomes through a combination of, of fire and in some cases uh, uh, grazing animals. What's interesting is that in a lot of places, those policies could be simply 
making sure that fire is legal and that that people who live in grassy biomes and have been burning them for um, their entire lives and for generations can continue to do so. Um, a question. I mean, do you? I mean, do you find yourself having difficulty ever, you know, balancing your role as an ecologist? You know, one who's strictly scientific. You're studying these ecosystems, and an advocate. Does that come up in your work? You know, to me, the bigger challenge is that on the scientific end, I I know what I know. I study the things I study, and um, uh, have a grasp of what others have done on those topics. As I approach the policy end, that's where I'm not an expert in terms of how these things get done. Um, but where what I am comfortable in doing is saying, hey, from a scientific perspective, these things look bad. You know, for example, if you impose fire suppression laws in this region, we have a really good idea of what is going to happen. To me, what's frustrating is is knowing that um, I perceive the details of these ecosystems in a way that a lot of people don't because they haven't spent a lot of time there. And I think that that is the challenge with, for example, uh, tree-focused conservation. When we have something that has become sort of symbolic of conservation, like a tree, um, that kind of oversimplification just really, um, it just really doesn't work in a complex world. And so I, I hope that what we're doing is, is, is trying to sort of raise the um, awareness of a broader spectrum of, of ecosystems, a broader spectrum of ecosystem services that exists around the globe. I mean, we have just such a tremendous diversity of different types of ecosystems globally that, um, that uh, it's, uh, I think that we can do better than just focusing on sort of simplistic uh, conservation symbols. And I think that's a really good place to leave it. Uh, Dr. Feldman, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you, James. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. To read the article we talked about today and more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. Thank you for listening and talk to you next month.